Thank you for joining us at Everyday Hope as we consider God and his word. And I'd like to ask you to pray with me, please. Father, as we consider your word, we know we are considering you. We're considering ourselves and what you have said about us in your word. So help us to think biblically. Help us to learn to follow you more closely, to think about truth more intently, and to live more effectively because of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're still considering the second chapter of Colossians 2, and I'm going to read a portion of that this morning. So if you want to join me in God's word in Colossians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin at the beginning of the chapter and read all the way through verse 15. So here's Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attain to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. This is the word of God, Colossians chapter 2, 1 to 15. So Paul, as he is writing this letter to this church in Colossae, he has been encouraging them, teaching them. Now he is warning them about something. And I want to point out two verses specifically. He says this in verse 4. I say this lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. And then he goes down to verse 8 and says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So Paul is concerned for these Jesus followers that they're going to listen to people they're going to pay attention to philosophy. They're going to be deceived and cheated through a worldview that is not Christ-centered. Notice he said in verse 8 again, Beware the principles of the world that are not according to Christ. 
You see, earlier in the book of Colossians, we read that Jesus is the one who has created all things. He is the head of all things. Everything was made by him. Everything was made for him. And any worldview, any philosophy of life that does not reflect that truth leads to destruction. And so Paul is talking to them here in this letter about this, and he's warning them, and he's calling them to think correctly so they will not be deceived by persuasive words. I like that he said they were persuasive. The things of this world do tend to persuade us. They are convincing what we see and touch and experience, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all those things that are fading away. But because we're still in the flesh, because this world is still fallen, those things are very persuasive. It's tempting to not look at life through the filter of Christ and him being the center of all things. So Paul is telling them that Jesus is sufficient for everything. Look again in verse 9 of Colossians chapter 2. For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Paul is warning against teaching that would say everything is not about Jesus and that Jesus is not about God. The world will have two different approaches. Either the world's philosophy will say, you don't need Jesus. Or the world will say, yes, you, can, you need Jesus, but you need other things as well. Both of those are damning. Both of those are destructive. That we don't need him, or we do need him, but we also need something else. How are you doing in that area? Is Jesus something you need, but you also need something else? Whether it's power or position or affirmation or pleasure or security, whatever it might be, be careful of living a life, being deceived, that thinking Jesus is not enough. Paul says in verse 10, you are complete in him. He's the head of all principality and power. If he is the head of every power, if he is the head of everything, how could he not be enough? Why is Jesus enough? It's because who he is. It's because what he's done. So Paul says he, that we are complete in him. And he goes on here in the next remaining verses, verses 11 through 15, he gives three specific, distinct ways of the way that we're complete in Christ. And when we're aware of these things and we're thinking about these things, we have our thoughts according to Christ, as verse 8 says. It will keep us from being deceived by persuasive speech. It will keep us from falling prey to philosophies and empty deceit. Again, look at verse 8. We can be cheated by not thinking biblically about who we are in Christ and what he has done. It's empty deceit. It seems promising, but there's nothing there. Because Jesus is enough. And if he's not enough, you have absolutely no other options. So let's look at three ways that Paul says we're complete in Christ and how he is sufficient. Verse 10, he says, you are complete in him. The first way we're complete is found in verses 11 and 12. Look at those again. In him, you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We are completely saved through the work of Christ. And he uses some Old Testament imagery here to show that we're completely saved. He talks about this idea of being circumcised. And this is a Jewish concept. Uh, 
men, boys, at, eight day, at um, the age of eight days, would be circumcised, the removal of their foreskin. It was a symbolic thing to show that they were part of God's covenant. They were relationally correct with him. Also, that part of the body was symbolic of the flesh, of the advancement of sin, of our worldliness. And so when that was removed, it allowed us to be identified with Christ. And so in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God keeps talking about circumcision. And not just physically, but actually God wants to circumcise us in our heart, to remove the part of our heart that is wrong. So we're right with him. And that's what he's talking about. In him, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's not talking about some type of physical ritual done to infant boys. He's talking about something spiritual in our heart, being completely saved. Putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When we are saved, we're rescued from the results of living in a world and in the flesh and in rebellion against God. Completely saved. So in verse 12, he says, we're buried with him in baptism. Burial is what occurs at death. Allow me to read from Romans chapter 6, please. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is writing to the church in the city of Rome. He says this in chapter 6, verse 4. Do you, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, let me just kind of pull over here for just a second so we're not confused. He's not talking about water baptism here as some type of physical rite that has to occur for salvation. And here's one way we know that. Back in our text in Colossians 2, he just was talking about circumcision not being a physical thing, but a spiritual thing. It had been a physical act in Judaism. But why would Paul say that there was going to be a replacement of one physical symbol, circumcision, to be replaced by another physical symbol, baptism, if they are needed for salvation? He's talking spiritually, baptized into Christ, immersed into him. And, of course, a water baptism is a picture of that reality. So again, back in chapter 6 of Romans, he says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Death is extremely important. Death is the penalty of sin. Christ is buried representing our death as he died, taking our death with him. So now the penalty for our death is met with Christ and his death. Verse 4 of Romans 6, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Keep that thought in mind as we get back to Colossians, walking in newness. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So as Paul, again back in Colossians 2 now, as Paul is saying you're completely saved in him. Is the salvation Christ offers you, is that salvation enough for you? Are you complete in him? Are you trying to add to it by performing some type of rituals, by changing your behavior, by being baptized or circumcised or any other activity? None of it is sufficient. It's adding to what has already been completed. And by adding to it, we're actually diminishing it by saying it's not sufficient. So we don't want to be deceived. We want to think truthfully about our salvation. We're complete in him. Our old self was crucified. And in the 
letter to Corinth, the second letter Paul wrote to Corinth in chapter 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So as we think about being complete in him, the first thing we need to think about is being completely saved in him. Now, let me just try to start tying some thoughts together as I go back to verse 6 of Colossians 2. As therefore you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. So as we have received Christ as our Savior, submitted ourselves to him, it is affecting the way I think, which affects the way I live. My walk is my life. So I need to be thinking, I need to be responding in my life to the fact that I am completely saved through Christ. I died with him. I was raised with him. I'm complete in him. He is sufficient. Well, let's look at the next thing that Paul says to the church in Colossae about being complete. So I'm completely saved. I see that in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I'm also completely forgiven. And, of course, they go together. We could not be completely saved if God only forgave us some of our sins because we're guilty of all of them, and he is a holy God, and all of our guilt has to be dealt with. So he says we're completely forgiven, and we see this in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 14. Allow me to read those again. Colossians 2, 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us and which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see what's going on here? We were dead. We were unforgiven. We were separated from God. Allow me to draw some other thoughts from Paul that uh, we find in the book of Ephesians, another letter Paul wrote, chapter 2. He says this, Ephesians chapter 2, You he made alive who are dead and trespasses and sins, in what you once walked according to the course of this world. You see, our walk, our life, is the walk of dead men spiritually. That's the way the world is. That's what he's warning us about here in the letter to Colossians, that uh, we don't fall prey to empty philosophy and persuasive words connected to death. You once were that way. Don't go back to living that way. You once walked according to the course of this world, Ephesians 2, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, referring to Satan. And we're going to see in just a few moments what Jesus does about that. Among whom also you once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Here it is in Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, rich in mercy. Have you ever thought about being rich? And you would be able to spend your riches in certain ways? God's rich in mercy, and he spends it in forgiving us. God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. 
You see, we're completely saved because we are completely forgiven. For those who are born again, when we stand before Christ, not for a single moment will he make an accusation against our sin. Because in Romans 8, 1, it says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus said, it is finished, that's exactly what it meant. The payment for my sin has been completely satisfied. And for yours as well, if you've repented and believed in Christ. Completely satisfied. That's what we're saying here. We're completely forgiven. We're completely saved. We're complete in Christ. Don't let the teaching, the philosophy, the thoughts of this world convince you to live otherwise. And as you're deciding how to live, not walking according to the flesh, as Ephesians 2 said, but walk according to your salvation. And again, let me connect this thought here in Colossians 2. He says, as you received Christ, so walk in him. So just as we're completely saved, should affect the way we're thinking and the way we live. Being completely forgiven should be demonstrated in the way we live. Again, in Ephesians 2, if I were to just keep reading a little further down in that letter that I just read from, we read this. In uh, Ephesians chapter 4, he says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Because I'm forgiven, I'm forgiving. Because I'm now looking at my sinfulness as being far greater than whatever is done to me. And as a matter of fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 taught us that if we're not forgiving, it's a reflection of the fact that we're not forgiven. Do you have a forgiving spirit? Are you keeping accounts against the sins done against you? Those who are forgiven completely, those who are saved completely, are complete in Christ. We have no need to keep score with those who sin against us. We realize that we're owned by God for his purposes. We're to be his ambassador to the life. We're to be his ambassador to the one who is sinning against us. So if we're being sinned against but not being forgiving, how can we possibly be the ambassador of the one who's forgiven us? I can't represent his forgiveness when I'm unforgiving. So that is how we walk according to what we have in Christ. As Colossians 2 says, God's forgiveness motivates us. God's forgiveness settles our accounts with Christ and with God. Back in Colossians 2, 14, he's wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. God's law demands perfection. John, you must be perfect. I have created you. You are accountable to me. And I'm guilty of that. I am not perfect. I sin. I rebel. I'm defiant. And it's all written down, as it were. The handwriting of requirements that was against us, it was contrary, it was against me. Imagine, if you will, a tablet with all of my sin, all of my accomplishments of death, all of my walk according to the things of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And there are the accounts. Here comes Jesus, and he takes that, wipes it away. As far as the east is from the west, the bottom of the sea 
having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In that text, we find our forgiveness for what we have done has a high, steep price. God didn't just decide, okay, I'll forgive them. The forgiveness was attained by God treating Jesus as a guilty sinner. He became sin. He didn't become a sinner, but he became sin in order for me to become righteous, to be right with him. And Paul weaves that in here. He's forgiven us. He's wiped out our transgressions, having nailed it to the cross. What a beautiful, powerful image as those nails are being driven into his hands, so to speak. There goes my lust. There goes my anger. There goes my fear. There goes my worry. All the things I'm guilty of. There goes my stealing. There goes everything. All my guilt pounded, pounded, pounded into the body of Christ physically and even more effectively as the weight of my sin was placed on his soul. Remarkable. If that doesn't motivate me to be forgiving, I don't understand what Christ did at, at Calvary. So we're completely saved. We're completely forgiven. These things should motivate us and keep us from being deceived by empty philosophy of the world. And finally, Paul says here in Colossians 2, we're completely victorious. Not only are we completely saved, we're completely forgiven. It's because we're completely victorious in Christ. Look at verse 15 of Colossians 2. Having disarmed principalities and powers. What principalities and powers? The same ones we read about in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, it says this, You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. I was part of an evil family with Satan as my father, and I loved it. I had no desire or inclination to please God. That's who I was without Christ. And now those things have been done away with. They've been disarmed. To be disarmed means the weapons have been removed. The power that Satan has over me, because I'm in Christ now, they've been removed. Ultimately, because of Christ. Now, we know because we're still in the flesh and still in this world, there's spiritual warfare going on. But you notice what Paul says, how we're to deal with that? In Ephesians chapter 6, we don't defeat Satan. It's not our job. Jesus already has. We stand behind the shield of faith. It says, by faith I believe what Colossians chapter 2 says. Colossians chapter 2 says, and I believe it by faith that Jesus has disarmed those powers. That Jesus has defeated them. And I have the sword of the Spirit, the word of God that I just read, to remind myself and remind others that these things are true. I'm completely victorious. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Through death he, Jesus, might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Our canceled debt disarms Satan, the accuser of the brethren. So when he comes and talks to us about our sin, my sin's forgiven. He can't accuse me. He can't accuse God against. He can't accuse God about me. They're forgiven. 
I want to conclude by going to another part of scripture that really supports this, that helps us think about this in a supportive way. And that's back to the book of Romans in chapter 8. And so I want to read part of Romans chapter 8 with this thought that we're complete in Christ, meaning we're completely saved, we're completely forgiven, and we're completely victorious. And Paul says this in a very powerful and effective way in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And I'll read a verse and make a comment or two. Let's back up to, uh, excuse me, verse 28 of Romans. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So God has a purpose. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice, God is doing all that work. So now, based upon those things, the work of Christ predestining us, calling us, justifying us, and glorifying us, now Paul asks some questions. What then shall we say to these things? In other words, if you are complete in Christ, how do we respond? If we're completely saved, completely forgiven, and completely victorious, what should be your response? If God is for us, who can be against us, he says in Romans 8. The answer is no one, because we're completely saved, because we're completely forgiven, because we're completely victorious. No one can be against us. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If we're completely forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross, how can we be incomplete in, the, in, in, in any other area? We fail to grasp the significance of the price Jesus paid to purchase our redemption. And we think we're lacking in something. And Paul's warning the church in Colossae, don't be deceived. Jesus is sufficient. He is completely God. All of the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. Verse 32 of Romans 8. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. No one can declare us guilty anymore because God has justified us. He's declared us innocent because of what Jesus has done. We're completely victorious. We're completely forgiven. We're completely saved. Verse 34 of Romans 8, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Remember, we're identified with Christ's death and we are also identified with this resurrection. So because Christ is resurrected, we know we have been resurrected in him. And there is now no condemnation because Christ is alive. If Christ were still dead, we would still be condemned. But he's not dead. Therefore, we are completely forgiven. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In other words, is there some unmet need? Is there something that's going to cause you to be separated? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Can something separate us from his love? Or are we complete? Moving on in Romans 8, 36. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So... It seems like Paul's arguing against himself because he just said this, who can be against us in verse 31? 
And then he's saying in verse 36, we're being killed all the time. They're both true. In other words, having man as an enemy, having Satan working through man as our enemy, ultimately has no power or authority over us eternally. Because he says this, verse 37, in all, yet in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Remember, we're completely victorious. Through him, we're more than conquerors. Now, conquering is pretty good. But being more than that. Now, he says this. Paul has been persuaded. That's a pattern of thinking. Something has persuaded him of something that's true. All the things he's been talking about. He's persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers. And there it again is the fact that we're completely victorious. How Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. That's why he can say in verse 38 of Romans that principalities and powers can't separate him from Christ's love. Nothing, nothing, nothing. We're complete in him. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the question. Is the love of Christ and the demonstration of Christ's love for us enough are you complete in him through being completely saved? Are you complete in him by being completely forgiven? Are you complete in him by being completely victorious? Or is there something else you need for your walk? If there is, then you've stepped away from what Paul is instructing us in Colossians chapter 2 where Christ is sufficient because he has all of the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him. So where are you today? Listening to the philosophy of the world and the things that tend to deceive us and draw us away from Christ? Are you dwelling on the sufficiency of Jesus and our completeness in him? It's one or the other. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are thankful for the letter to the church in Colossae because... The reality of it is, even those who follow you are tempted to listen to other voices. We find the things in this world alluring. We sometimes think that we're not complete. We're not satisfied. We're not content. We need something more than Jesus. Paul is reminding us here that he is sufficient. That if we're completely saved, and if we're completely forgiven and completely victorious, our lives are complete. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for watching. Lord willing, we'll talk soon.